My name is Logan Reynolds. I get to serve as, the, as one of the pastors at First Baptist Belton, and so I, I get to be a part of the mother church of Renewal, if, if that is such a thing. And so it's a joy for me to get to be here with you this morning. Uh, like Bonnie said, my relationship with Matthew goes, goes way back. Uh, Ten years feels way back for me. Maybe for some of you it doesn't, it doesn't mean a whole lot, but it means a lot to me. And so ten years ago I was sitting in a business office, young, probably arrogant, uh, thinking that I knew everything that there is to know about business and uh, trying to set a name for myself, make as much money as I can so I could set up a beautiful house and a beautiful uh, life for my wife and future kids and all those things. And then I met Matthew, um, and it all went downhill from there. Uh, we started this great relationship, a discipleship relationship, and for over a year and a half, Matthew poured into me, and through that relationship, God would eventually call me to the ministry. And so what you're about to hear this morning is a direct influence of what Matthew did in my life 10 years ago, and so you can blame him uh, for whatever I'm about to say. Um, you totally can, yeah, and he can, he can handle it, he can take it. And so Matthew called me to something greater, he called me to something bigger, he saw God was moving in my life in a big way, and he said, Logan, I think, I think God has something more for you than business, I think God has something more for you than insurance, and um, man, I think God's called you to the ministry, and I began thinking through that and what that looks like, and I took that to my wife, and I'll never forget the words, no, that is not in our future. Um, and yet through prayer, God was kind, and uh, man, he rejoined us, and, and both of us believed that God had called us to the ministry. And so, man, now fast forward 10 years, 10 years, and now I get to stand up in front of the church that the guy who poured into me and called me to ministry, I get to stand in front of his church and preach for you and encourage you this morning. And so I, I feel very privileged uh, very humbled, and it's certainly not something that I want to take for granted. And so thank you for having me and putting up with me this, this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. That's what happens when you guest preach. You get to preach from Revelation. Uh, because I don't have to clean up the mess when I leave. So Matthew Colton, this is on you. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verses 1 through 7. Let me kind of, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of a rundown of what's happening so this is going to be the first of seven letters that Jesus himself, so the risen Jesus that we just sang about who is alive, this is, this is going to be his first letter to one of the seven churches in Asia, that is the church in Ephesus. Uh, now God has done some incredible things in Ephesus up, at this, up to this point. As a matter of fact, if you were to read of the account in the book of Acts, you would see that God has done radical things in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, you would get to, uh, if you'd keep reading, you would see that all of the people of Asia, okay, all of the people of Asia had now heard of the word of the Lord. And so you've got a people who have come and they have created a church plant that many would call the greatest church plant, the greatest church that has ever existed to this day. And so you have God doing some amazing things. Ephesus is an incredible place. Think New York City. Think Port City. You've got a lot of people coming in, a lot of people going out. And so as they're hearing Paul preach the gospel, as you're hearing this church proclaim the gospel in their city, in their neighborhoods, and in their communities, and their workplaces, the gospel is now spreading all over Asia. And so, again, the text says that all of the people of Asia have now heard of the word of the Lord. And that's where we are at this morning. And so Jesus is going to do a couple of things here. He's going to give them some commendations. So he's going to encourage them on what they have done well. He's going to give them a report card, if you will. He's going to say, hey, this is, this is where I think you're doing well. 
And then he's going to give them a little bit of critique. And then after that, he's going to give them some instruction. And then we're going to see how he's going to close with encouragement. And so this morning, we're going to begin in Revelation chapter, seven, or for chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Jesus is writing, and he says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he says this in verse 2, I know your works. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And he says that in you have found them to be false. He says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He says, Church of Ephesus, man, you're doing so great. And you're doing so many things well. As a matter of fact, in this report card, verse 1 tells us there's two key verses. The first one is this, that, that Jesus says, that, or the text says that the words of him who hold the seven lampstands. What you need to know is the lampstands are the seven churches in Asia. They're the seven key churches in Asia. And it says that Jesus holds them in his hand. It speaks to the intimacy of which Jesus has with this church. And that he knows them, that there's nothing that they do that he is not intimately aware of. As a matter of fact, it goes on and it says that it's the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So not only is Jesus coming at them uh, from a place of intimacy, but he's coming from a place of knowing them. He's saying, listen, church, I see you. I know you. And I love you. I see the goods, I see the bads, I see the mountaintops, I see the valleys. There's nothing that you're doing, there's nothing that you're, not, that you're a part of that I am not keenly aware of. Oh, Jesus knows the intimacy, or Jesus knows this church well. May I tell you this morning that Jesus knows renewal well. And see, there's not a thing that you're doing this morning, there's not a thing that you've been a part of in the last year that Jesus is not intimately aware of. I think Bonnie said just a minute ago of all the things that God has done here and that we, we are welcoming his presence. Can I just remind you that Jesus' presence is here no matter how big or how small your congregation is where two or three or more are gathered in his name. Jesus' presence is here and so his presence is here. And it's not a presence of a dead king but the presence of a live king, a living king, a king who is worthy of all of your worship, a king who is worthy of all of your praise. Jesus knows you. He knows you individually, and he knows you corporately. And so Jesus is going to begin to go on, and he's going to commend them. He's going to commend them for his works, verse 2 says. He says, I know your works. The first thing that he commends them on, if you're taking notes, is their kingdom work. He says, listen, I get, I get what you're doing. I, I get all of what you're doing. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. He says, man, I know that you're working hard. Renewal Church, Jesus knows that you're working hard. He knows all of you who get up here at 6.30. I don't know if y'all still do that or not, but I know when I was here a year ago, there were people getting up here at 6.30 to make this thing happen. He says, I know you. I, I, I know everything that you're doing for this church to make this happen. I know what you're doing, the toil in which you are laboring so that the kingdom may advance. I know what you're doing in your neighborhoods. I know that you are pursuing missional communities. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, I understand, I get, I know the sacrifice that exists. Man, when you're putting your life on the line and saying, hey, come, I want you to come know, I want you to come know my Jesus. He says, man, I know you. I know your works. 
He says, I know your patient endurance. Listen, I don't know what it's like to come to a school every Sunday. I've not yet had the opportunity to be a part of a church plant, but I know what it's like to forsake the comforts of a church. It's not easy. I mean, all this setup, everything that you've got to do here every Sunday, this has all got to happen so that Jesus can be made known. Listen, Jesus says, I I get that. I know you. I know what you're doing. I know what you're investing in. And he says, I know your patience. I know your patience. And the second thing is, is he commends them for their holiness and their sound doctrine. In verse second half of verse 2, he says, and I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. He says that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. In the midst of the secular culture in which Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, was dealing with in Ephesus, you know, they, they had pressed into the culture. They had pressed into the darkness, and they truly were living as salt and light. And so Jesus commends them. He says, listen, man, you've pressed into the culture, but yet you have not become like the culture. And for many churches in our day, for the sake of reaching the lost, have started looking like the lost. And for the sake of, of reaching the world, we sometimes don't look anything different than the world. And so Jesus commends the church in Ephesus. He says, listen, man, I, I get the secular culture that surrounds you. I, I get the peer pressure. I get all of the things in which you're dealing with, and yet you have not allowed them to overtake you, but rather you have pressed, pushed back the darkness, and you have shown the light of Christ in Ephesus. And he says, I commend you for that. He says, I commend you I commend you for pushing back the darkness. If you were to look in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, it says this. Paul is warning the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. He says, and they will not spare the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So it was not only just the secular culture in which Ephesus was dealing with, but it was also within the church itself. And so Paul warns the Ephesian elders, he says, listen, there's a day coming when you're going to have wolves, fierce wolves. They're not coming to be your buddy. They're going to come to your church and they're going to seek to lead people astray. And yet the church of Ephesus was able to identify them was able to refute them. And I just wonder, Renewal Church, are we to that place? Are we to that place where where we have pursued sound doctrine in such a way? And listen, I know Matthew. I know know the constitution by which he wrote for Renewal. I, I, I know that you guys are in pursuit of sound doctrine, but I just wonder individually, man, are we to a place where we can refute, where we can identify those in whom are going to infiltrate our ranks, if you will. For goodness sake, Judas lived and ate and drank and slept next to Jesus for three years and yet was never a part of him. And so Jesus commends them for their holiness, their sound doctrine. And lastly, Jesus commends them for their kingdom worldview and mindset. He says this, I know that you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. What Jesus is doing there is he is commending them for their eternal perspective. Their kingdom perspective. He says, man, I know your sacrifice. I get it. I get it. 
But what the church in Ephesus is doing is not bearing up for their kingdom, but rather they're bearing up for the kingdom of God. They lived with an eternal mindset. They lived with an internal perspective such that they could come to a school without the comforts, without the pleasure of, of having a sound system set up, without a band who, who doesn't have to come and set up all of this stuff. And yet he says, man, I, I get it. I know. You're living with a kingdom mindset. You're living with a kingdom perspective. Listen, the church in Ephesus, if there ever was such a one where we should model our churches after, it would be this one. Some scholars, some academics would say that this is the quintessential church growth model that we should employ today. But before you get too excited, in verse 4, Jesus offers them a critique. In verse 4, he says this. He says, but I have this against you. He says that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, but I have this against you. He says, yeah, man, I, I get that, that man, your, your kingdom work, that you're patiently, you're working hard, you're enduring up for my name's sake. I get that you have a kingdom perspective. I get that you're pursuing holiness and sound doctrine and a strong theological conviction. He says, I get all of those things, but in pursuit of those things, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Some translations say the, your first love, that you have abandoned your first love, Ephesus. If you, that word abandoned means to leave for dead. It doesn't mean to just set it aside. It doesn't mean that it's just no longer a priority. It means that you have left it for dead. The church in Ephesus, in all of their sake of faithfulness, and all of their sake of sound doctrine, and all of their, their pursuits of education and setting up an incredible church and even their missional identity, they had abandoned the love that they had at first. For all the good that they have done, it is meaningless apart from their love of Jesus. Do you understand that? Do you get that? See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, man, you can have all the gifts in the world. You can have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but yet if you do not have love, you are a loud clanging cymbal. You're a loud clanging gong. What Jesus is saying here is that, man, you can have it all together you can think you have everything, and yet if you have lost your love of Jesus, then you actually have nothing. You actually have nothing. The honeymoon season was over for the church in Ephesus. They had abandoned the love that they once had for something else. This renewal church is called idolatry. To take good things to take incredibly good things and elevate them to ultimate things is what the Bible calls is idolatry. And listen, all of our pursuits of knowledge in regard to doctrine and theology is great and it is a noble thing, but our study of God must always do two things. It must always lead us to a deeper love and affection for Jesus and a greater love for others. If it doesn't do those two things, there's something terribly wrong with our theology. There's something terribly wrong with our study of God's word. Because if it doesn't do those two things, what it leads to is frustration, burnout, depression, and legalism. 
If it doesn't, if your study of God's word, if it does not lead you to a deeper love of God and an evident love of neighbor, there is something terribly wrong with our theology. There's something terribly wrong. The church in Ephesus had taken really good things and he had made them ultimate things. My encouragement to you would be understand this, that the war for a healthy church is not fought and it is not won and it is not lost on our obedience to Christ, but rather in our affections for Christ. See, it is our affections for Christ, it is our love for Christ that has to always lead us to our obedience. It is our deep love and our affection for Christ, his foremost affection in our heart that ought to lead us to obedience. Oh, don't lose your first love. Oh, don't forsake. Oh, don't abandon your first love, Jesus says. Renewal Church, remember why you're here. And when you're here, when you're getting up early to set up for this place, man, do not remember who your boss is. It's not Matthew. It's not Colton. It's not this church, but it is Christ and Christ alone. And can I tell you that he's a great boss? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He is a God of rest. He is a king of rest. He is a king who is alive and he is a king who is willing and able to give you rest as you come. As you come and you set up early. As you give your life for this church plan. As you give your life to the advancement of the gospel in Temple, Texas and Belton and Bell County. Tim Keller helps us identify our, our, our idol, idolatry sorry, <clears throat> by asking four questions. He says this, what is my greatest nightmare? What is your greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? What do I rely on for comfort, to, to comfort myself when things go badly or become difficult? What makes me feel most self-worth? What am I the proudest of? Kids, grandkids, home, career. What am I the proudest of? I mean, what do I really want and expect out of life? And what are the things that truly make me happy? So what you and I have to do this morning, we've got to ask that question individually. And what, are you, what are you most afraid of? If it was taken from you right now, what would cause you the most grief and unhappiness? What are those things that would cause the most happiness if you were to get them? What's that one thing? See, Tim Keller asks us, he says, listen, if you want to know what your idolatry is, if you want to know what you're worshiping, if you want to know what holds your greatest affections, you ask these questions. So the next question I would ask you this is, what do we worship the most as a church? What is renewal church worship. Is it Jesus? Or are there some really, really good things that we have elevated to be great things, ultimate things? We have to ask this question of the church. What, what is our greatest nightmare as a church? Is it, that we, is, it, is it that we cease to exist? Is it that we actually never grow? that we don't become self-funded? What, what is our greatest nightmare of a church, uh, as a church? 
What do we worry about most? I can guarantee you Matthew and Colton could probably tell you all these things. What do we rely on or comfort ourselves with? And I know as a pastor, numbers can often be a thing that hinders us. That if there's not enough people who come, man, man, did I say something wrong last week? And what is it as a church that, that we value most? What holds our deepest affections? What makes us feel most self-worth? What are we proudest of? What do we really want and expect out of Renewal Church? If we answer these questions honestly and openly, I think we should arrive at what our idols are, what hold our affections. And so in verse verse 5, Jesus is going to give them some instructions. He says, okay, here's the deal. Now Now that you've gotten this, I've commended you, I've given you a critique. He said, now I'm going to give you some instructions for renewal. How about that, Renewal Church? I'm going to give you some instructions for renewal. In verse 5, he says this, Remember, therefore, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. That's what he says. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I would take you to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, where Paul's writing, and he says this, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, not just a few of us, but all. The Greek word for all there means all. Among all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And Paul says, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Oh, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Oh, by grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul again, he says, for, it is for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. What Paul is reminding the church of Ephesus is he says, listen, this is who you were. This is where you came from. Maybe you've heard the phrase, don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you have come from. Can I just remind you that at one point you were dead, of which you brought nothing of value to the table. Spiritually speaking, you were dead of no value, and yet Jesus looked upon you in your helplessness and hopelessness, and he said, that one right there, that one's mine. That one's mine, and, and he, he made you alive with him in Christ. We can worship a, a living Savior, but, but we don't worship as those who are dead people, but we worship as those who have been made alive. This morning you were made alive. So Paul says, man, don't, don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you have come from. Don't forget that it was by grace that you have been saved, that, that there is nothing that you can do to earn it. There is nothing that you can do to receive it. 
You know, it's, it's interesting. You can't, you can't take a gift. You can only receive it. You can only receive it. And so Paul reminds us this morning that grace is a gift. It is a gift that you can only receive. And he says, remember who you are. And he says, then repent. Repent. I love Matt Chandler says this. He says, owning your sin is the gateway to our joy. And what I long for you, what I long for my ministry, what I long for myself is that, that we would have a true discernible spirit of repentance. That we would understand that our sin is nothing to play games with. As a matter of fact, your sin is seeking to destroy you. It's not seeking to be your buddy. It's seeking to destroy you. But more than that, it is a, it's an offense to a holy God. Oh, may we might have a spirit of repentance. Oh, may we might come before God and understand his holiness and understand his bigness and understand the reality that at one point we were dead and it is only by his grace that we have been saved and we would come to the cross and that we would have a spirit of repentance. Jonathan Edwards and his work on revival says that in order to have a true work of God, there's got to be five things that exist. The first one is a growing esteem for Jesus. Oh, that Renewal Church would have a growing esteem for Jesus. That you would have a love for God's word. That there would be a discernible spirit of repentance among you. And that you would have an interest in doctrine and theology. And that, oh, man, that you would have an evident love for God and neighbor. And that is my hope for you. That is my hope for me. That is my hope for my ministry. My hope is that we truly would experience a revival in Belton and Temple and to Bell County and to the ends of the earth. That we would truly have a, I mean, the, the church is named Renewal, not for it's for a great purpose. It's because Matthew's hope, my hope for you, is that truly, that, that this, the Bell County would truly experience a renewal, a spiritual renewal that people couldn't call cultural Christianity, but it would be because the Holy Spirit has fallen on this area in such a way that it would, la- it would radically change hearts, that it would radically change the course and the direction of people's lives. Oh, that we would experience true transformation and renewal. And then he says, I, w- I want you to return to the works you did at first. To put it simply, Jesus says, man, I, I just want you to return back to, whoa, hey, easy. I want you to turn back to the works that you did at first. The works that were influenced by your love that you had in me. I want you to return back to the works that you did at first. The works that were influenced. The works that were done not in the name of the church in Ephesus. Not for the sake of sound doctrine. Not for the sake of kingdom work, not for the sake of anything other than your affections deeply rooted in me. Oh, this morning that we would be rooted in our love of Jesus, both individually and corporately. That we would understand that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom to be played, playing games. 
but rather it is a kingdom that is seeking to be advanced. Advanced by a people who love Jesus with all their heart, souls, minds, and strength and love people as ourselves, and so we go. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Because we were at one time dead in our sins and we have been made alive. Let have a verse 5 and 6. Jesus gives us the consequences. See, there's always grace for our sin. But sin has consequences. And so Jesus says this in verse 5. He says, if not, that is, if you do not remember, repent, and return. He says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Unless, of course, you repent. He has just offered them a warning for their disobedience. He's offered them a call. He says, come back to me. Come back to your first love. Come back. Remember, repent. Return to the works you did at first. But in the case that you do not, here are the consequences for which you will have to live with. He says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. See, what's at stake, what was at stake for the church in Ephesus and what is at stake at the church of renewal, what's at stake for the church at First Baptist Belton is that if we do not do these things, if we do not live out of our love for Christ, we take the chance on losing our influence. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, if you do not live out of your affection, if you do not live out of your love for me, what I will do is I will come to you as a loving father, as a loving husband of his bride, and I will remove your church. I will remove your influence. And may that not be so. May that not be so for us. And I cannot think of a a greater time to be alive. I cannot think of a greater time to be a church plant. Because right now, I I know when when we came a year ago and we canvassed the neighborhoods all around uh, Renewal Church in North Belton Middle School, I was astounded by what I saw. I was astounded by what I heard. And there are lost people all around you, people that you work with, people who live in your communities. I was blown away by the 66 houses that I knocked on their doors, and out of the eight people who answered the door, only one was interested in a spiritual conversation whatsoever. And there has never been a time where a Christian, a true Christian influence is needed more than right now. And so my hope for you, my my desire for you is that, man, that we would be that influence, that you would be that influence in your workplaces, in your communities, in your neighborhoods, in your families, and it would be influenced, and it would be informed, and it would be motivated by your love for Jesus. And then he gives them a promise in verse 7. I love that Jesus gives them a promise. He says this, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is, which is in the paradise of God. And so what he does is he, he reminds us back to the Garden of Eden. He says, remember, it was the tree of Garden and, uh, in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, that, where we experience this brokenness. And so what he's doing is he's, he's returning us back to the tree. He's, he's t- returning us back to the new heavens and the new earth on the day that when we get to heaven that we can truly eat of this tree. And it is not a tree 
of death, but as a tree of life. It is a tree of life for those of us who persevere to the end with our love of Jesus at the foremost. We will get to eat of the tree of life and we will never grow weary because we will get to live for all of eternity worshiping our eternal king. And so he says, persevere, church. Persevere. Don't grow weary. Don't be tired. Step in. Trust me. Give your life to me. Give your affections from me. And he says, in this promise I'll leave you, that you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise with me forever, for all of eternity. You know, there's a historical irony that exists for the church of Ephesus. Now, as of about 250 A.D., the church in Ephesus ceased to exist. About 250 A.D., the church in Ephesus was no longer there, but rather laid in ruins. Now, there's many things. There's many reasons for that, right? I mean, could it have been leadership? Yeah. Sure, sure. It could have been leadership. Could it have been that, man, they just couldn't meet budget yet again? Sure. Maybe it was the secular culture. Maybe the the culture finally got their hands on them and turned them away from Christ. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was persecution. Or maybe it was because they refused to remember, repent, and return. Maybe, just maybe, maybe it was because they refused to remember who they were, to repent of where they had fallen. And maybe it it was because they had They had neglected and they didn't return to the love that they had at first. Maybe it was that their affections had grown cold. Maybe it was that their zeal had become dim. Maybe the passion that they once existed with suddenly became dull. You know, I know as, as, as you guys approach your first year, you know, I remember when we first got married, everybody said, man, watch out for, for year one. Watch out for year one, because once the honeymoon season goes over or ends, he said, it's going to be rough. They said, oh, it's going to be rough. And so what I did, I remember I made a conscious decision as we got to year one in our marriage. I said, no, I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to fight for my affections for my wife. I'm going to fight for my love for her. I'm going to fight despite the fact that we have all this stuff going on, that we just bought a new house, we had started a new ministry, all of these things. Despite all of that, I'm going to fight for her. Oh, would you fight for Jesus? Renoa, would you, would you take up a stand and man, would you grab a hold of Christ and, and would, would you make him enough in your life? both individually and corporately. Listen, we are only as strong as our weakest link. And so, man, for you individually in this room, if you are not doing that, you are hurting the church. You are hurting the church. And so I'm pleading with you, I'm asking you with you. Man, if this is you, if, if you've taken good things and if, you have made, if you've elevated them to be ultimate things, man, I'm asking you to repent I'm asking you to remember where you have come from and I am asking you to take hold of Christ, to set your affections on him. Oh, what might God do? 
oh, what might he do in and through your influence? What might he do through Renewal Church in this city? What he might do in Belton and to the ends of the world? Man, I love that Matthew and Colton are at Southeast Asia, but listen, if we're not doing it here, how can we expect to do it there? And so just like Matthew called me to something higher, I want to call you to something higher this morning. I want to call you to, man, set your affections on Christ. He's the only thing that will not disappoint you. He is the only thing who will not let you down in this world. Money will let you down. Success will let you down. Your kids are going to let you down. Your mom and your dad are going to let you down. Everything in this world is going to let you down. The only person in this world who will not let you down is Jesus. And so take hold of him. Take hold of him and run to your first love. Don't walk. Don't tarry. Run.